Hello, Erica. Hello, Stephen. Um, so we've been watching two more episodes of the Daleks Master Plan. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the episode titles? Nope. Episode five was Counterplot. I'm I'm not I like the sound of these names but I'm not really picking up on the meanings of them all that well all the time. You must mean the title of episode 6, Coronas of the Sun. Yeah. I mean, maybe they're just referring to the the bright light that comes from the terranium. That's uh... That's what that makes sense sort of coronas. It's bright. It's more dis- it's less descriptive than a Babylon 5 episode title and that is saying something. That is a sick burn. Yep. Um so yeah, we watched two episodes. It's, this feels like a very natural point to stop and do a podcast with episode 7 on its way. Um but the first one moved. It moved real moving actual pictures and having Chen walking around and stuff happening in our first sight of Sierra Kingdom and stuff. What do you think of that one? That was really cool. I it's interesting because on Radio Free Scarrow, quite often Warren will complain about cl- classic like black and white Doctor Who because he read a lot of the target novelizations first and then, you know, had these great pictures built up in his mind and then he saw what they actually looked like and was disappointed. And honestly, for me, it's the opposite. I don't have a very good imagination, I guess, when it comes to visuals. I, I don't picture things when I'm reading books or listening to audio. So I listened to this before and I didn't really have any kind of a clear picture of stuff in my head. And I think I just assumed that since it was the 60s and the budget was low, it would just kind of look not very good. And then I see this episode and I see the sets. It looks freaking amazing. (laughs) It's really cool. So The big set. The big set with the mice thing in it and they go in there and the Mavic Chen's walking around. Nothing! And he does that. That kind of room. Yeah. That that and the uh, the set on um, on Myra mm-hmm. was also looked really good. All that dry ice. Dry ice. I mean, I know it's a cheap effect, but it looks so cool. Like some of the, the little bubbles coming up from, from the water would turn into tiny little smoke rings. <laughs> it was like, oh, it was really? like yeah, it was like, like there's a million tiny Gandalfs right under the water just <laughs> blowing, blowing smoke rings. It's really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like the look of this episode. I like the way it's directed and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots of neat cutting back and forth between scenes and stuff, which I think is always neat in an early 60s Doctor Who because it's tough to do. Um mm-hmm. You get a really nice, speaking of direction, a really nice close-up of Mavic Chen holding the pen in his weird way, and it just stays on his hand as he's talking until he comes to the end, definitive end of his sentence, and he lifts his pinky and his, his forefinger, mm-hmm. and the pen drops down, and then the camera backs up and zooms out a little bit. It's just really cool. I know. I still love the way that uh, Kevin Stoney points with his pinky finger all the time. I just think that is such, I don't know what he's doing. Mm-hmm. It's very alien, though. Sort of, you know, it makes him look like he's alien and not some weird mystic white guy painted up like a person from the Asia. Um. I I don't know. There's a part of me that wonders I, that, that wonders if that is supposed to be some sort of yeah <laughs> Asian thing. Yeah, I, mm. which I mean, I don't know what the portrayal of of um, Asians was at that time. If that was something that's that's hearkening back to. A racist stereotype that we're just not as familiar with anymore so i'm i'm given the side eye for that a little bit but um but yeah his performance is still good actually i like that moment that you mentioned where he 
goes all grandiose villain for a second and then like kind of like he's got his arms out and suddenly like he realizes what he's done and he kind of looks around and I even said out loud I was like yep you look ridiculous and and I found that scene really interesting and affecting because there's a lot of nice back and forth between him and Carlton and I'm starting to realize that that like Carlton strikes me as being quite a bit more clever than Mavic Chen. He's the one that's com- he comes up with this plan, feeds it to him. It's it's almost like the uh the classic power behind the throne mm-hmm. kind of guy where you think, "Oh, maybe he's actually the brains of this operation and has been all along." And and I don't remember what comes too well what comes after this, so I could be way off, but that's that's what it looks like here. We've got a little bit of that sort of power, not so much power struggle going on. And then as as you know, Kevin Stoney leaves and he says, I'll be the, you know, the most powerful man in history or whatever and, and yeah. Carlton says, Yes or no I'll be the uh, you are you have a privileged place in history. You'll be next to this greatest power. He goes, you know, the highest power. They go, the highest next to you. I just love the way he says that. It's one of my favorite lines in Doctor Who. I was waiting for it. I said, yes, there it is. It was great. And the way that he delivered it really was more, it, it, it gave me more nuance to be able to see him, mm-hmm. to see him deliver it because I think the first time through that I heard it, it sounded just like he was, you know, jealous and wanted to take over from Mavic Chen and be the large, you know, big man on campus sort of a thing. Right. Except now I'm wondering if he's actually just, he's, he's a smarter guy and he is happy to have Mavic Chen as this figurehead between him and the Daleks because the Daleks are, you know, they're, they're iffy and they're dangerous. So maybe he's happy in this position, at least for now, it seems like he is, you know, the highest, you know, next to you mm-hmm. because that's the safest place to be where he can still actually have a lot of control without taking as much of the risk. Well, here's the tragedy of the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, Carlton's done in this story. I don't. What? I don't think we see him again because uh, he was stationed on Earth. Yep. Uh, Mavic Chen goes back to Earth for episodes four and five, um, and that's where he is. Him and the rest of his technics, the, the mm-hmm. shaven head guys, who uh, I think demanded or asked for or held out for more money the extras who had to shave their heads for these parts it's a famous photo of william hartnell standing amongst two or three of them with his mm-hmm. hands on their heads and they're smiling and everything like that because they're they're bald you see um so yeah i don't think we actually see him again which is such a tragedy because that would have been such an interesting little side plot to this episode all right, my headcanon mm-hmm. is that that I'm right about his motivations and that, you know, when Mavic Chen, spoilers, uh, finally falls, uh, which I don't actually remember how that happens. Mm-hmm. I just know it does. Well, duh, he's fighting against the doctor. Right. He's going down. Yep. Um, yeah, is that uh, that because Carlton was smart enough to keep himself one layer away from the seat of power, he actually basically kind of... Probably gets away scot free, or manages to to escape, or something. You know, he doesn't have to deal with the you know direct repercussions with the Daleks or with the Doctor or any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So maybe the Twelfth Doctor needs to uh, needs to go back and run into Carlton at some point. Yes, there was a power vacuum at the top of the uh, solar system in the year four thousand. So I imagine that Carlton probably swept in to power. Maybe. Ooh. Have at it, Big Finish. The Sarah Kingdom Chronicles. Is your, they might have already done that, actually. It, maybe. I don't. I haven't listened to any of... No. 
much of that stuff. Speaking of Sarah Kingdom, yeah. I am going to backpedal some of my ranting right. um, from before. <clears throat> After listening to this story, my impression was pretty firmly that I thought that Breadvine was a, a solid companion and that Sarah Kingdom pretty much wasn't. And my reasoning was because Brett Vian, you know, kind of like, I don't know, they worked together well. He seemed to be cooperative. You know, they had that nice sort of friction that I had mentioned before, Mm -hmm. but it was sort of more of a, we're all on the same side, good-natured friction. And I felt like hearing Sarah Kingdom and the rest of them working together, that she was sort of there because she was stuck with them as opposed to volunteering to work together like Brett Byan had. But actually after seeing her on screen and watching them work together, uh, I feel like she really has sort of made the transition to companionness more than came across in the audio, yeah. which makes me even sadder about all of the other missing episodes. Cause how many, how many insights like that am I going to be missing out on? Because I can't actually see what's happening on screen. Yeah, like Enemy of the World, that forgotten story in the middle of a bunch of monster episodes that we thought, oh, well, who cares about that one? Let's get the Web of Fear back. And then we get Enemy of the World back, and it's really great. Yeah, it's it it makes a big difference to mm. be able to, to see what the actors are doing. Yeah. Um, episode six is, see, this is where things get different because uh, Terry Nation wrote episodes five, one through five, and then the ne- uh, next episode, we're talking about episode seven. And Dennis Spooner, from an idea of Terry Nation, I think, wrote the other six. I think it was, I can't remember if it was always supposed to be those two doing them, uh, or if Dennis Spooner came and it says, because Terry Nation couldn't finish it or something. I'm not too sure how that actually worked. But I'm wondering if the, you know, dropping of Carlton and, and you know, stuff like that, I'm wondering if, if because there's basically, apart from Feast of Stephen, um, there's a new writer writing this. I wonder if there that's a reason why things change, perhaps. I don't know. Mm, that's, an, that's an interesting thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. which And it would kind of make sense to sort of have the creative control being, <clears throat> you know, dumped from one hand to another. Yes, it is from an idea by Terry Nation. But maybe he had some ideas about how Carlton was going to fit into things later and didn't bother to, you know, they weren't fully fleshed out enough to pass them along or mm-hmm. have them in there. So he just sort of fades away, which is too bad because he is such a great character. You are you are right about that. Hmm. Interesting. And while we're talking about Terry Nation, do mm-hmm. can I please just say, like, <laughs> planet named Myra, and it's kind of like a swampy mire sort of a place. And the invisible things, which that was amazing, by the way. I love that. Uh, called, what were they? Visions? Visions, yeah. Oh, Terry Nation. <laughs> Come on. Jeez. Oh, it's like it's like a gimmick that's kind of cute, and then it's not so cute after a while. It's very, um, it's a very colonial attitude in that, mm-hmm. you know, he he's basically calling these creatures by names that you know describe them essentially and not really like imagine the visions as we call them mm-hmm. probably have a different uh <laughs> name for themselves but mm-hmm. terry nation says we can't see them so they're called visions mm-hmm. should be unvisions really <laughs> i i like i like the line that the dalek says they appear to be invisible which uh, amused me <laughs> i love that yeah. too i laughed as well oh they appeared oh daleks you're yeah. wacky I, I but i thought the 
because I had forgotten that this was the episode that had the invisible invisible creatures. And I remember listening to that and wondering how on earth they would have done that on screen because mm-hmm. that just seemed mystifying to me. And I had, but I'd forgotten that that was, that was what was happening here. And when you have that close up on unconscious Sarah kingdom and her hair, like something lifts up her hair. I was like, Ooh, what was that? And then for a second, the camera moved away and there's nothing there. And I was thinking, did I just, is, is the camera kind of weird or is it just that the, uh, the film quality is not so good? And I imagined that that happened, but then her arms started to move. And then I remembered the, the, the fact that there were invisible aliens. Mm-hmm. I can imagine that the, uh, the sense of what the heck is going on probably would have lasted a lot longer for people watching this the first time who didn't know that there were invisions, as yeah. I'm going to call them from now on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> were, were there. So it was, just, it was really well done. And the footprints yeah. of the invisible thing, I mean, you pointed out that that thing walked very slow, which mm-hmm. is true. I'm, I'm sure he was just being very careful. Uh, but that looked really neat. I mean, this felt very, you know, 50s B sci-fi movie to me in the mm-hmm. way that it was visually done. And mm-hmm. of all of the episodes to have back, I'm really, really glad that this was one because I really wanted to know how the invisible thing things were done. And it was really cool. I just, I kind of wish we could have seen the, the great battle scene at the beginning of the next episode uh, yeah. with with the Daleks versus the, the Invisians because I would have liked to have seen how that played out as well. But this was this was great. The the reveal of the invisible things was cool, mm-hmm. and the Doctor fighting against something invisible. William Hartnell went for it. That was great. Uh, that's not the first time he's done that. He uh, swatted his uh, cane around in a sword fight in another Douglas Canfield directed story uh, in the Crusade. That's right. one. So. He must. He must have said, "Oh, he wants me to do stuff." It, you know, it makes you. It makes you realize and remember that William Hartnell was playing old. Mm-hmm. He wasn't old mm-hmm. at this point. He was just sort of playing an old man. I think he sort of took on the personality and irascibility of an old man, perhaps in dealing with producers, um, about which we'll talk about later on in this story. Oh yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's interesting things afoot. Yeah, I'm I'm excited. I like that little teaser there. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mark, I'd also mark down for very future use um, the various tropes of Terry Nation because those will come back in a future story. No surprise there. Yeah. Yes, that's not not surprising at all. So, what do you think about Stephen's science experiment? Well, I'm not sure what to think about that. He. He hasn't really struck me as the impetuous type mm-hmm. so far, so it was a little bit surprising to me character-wise that he just went ahead and did something like that. I mean, that sort of strikes me as the kind of thing that, I don't know, Susan might have done right. or, you know, Zoe in the future. But to have Steven be the one to do that seemed a little, I don't know. I wonder if there's a hint of jealousy there. Because Sarah Kingdom is so much, you know, more advanced because we're here in the year 4000 and he's from whenever he is. He's from the future too. Yes, but he they make it very clear that the time that he's from right. has, you know, archaic technology compared to what what Sarah and the Doctor use. And I think that he's feeling maybe a little bit threatened that he's got, you know, he's somebody not really replacing him exactly, but, but maybe a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. That uh, that may be part of the reason that he got a little petulant and decided to just go ahead with his experiment without listening to the doctor and and Sarah 
is because he wanted to prove himself. And he sort of did, but he also kind of proved himself to be an idiot. It's similar to what he did. He was very resistant to whatever Vicky was telling him mm-hmm. in The Time Meddler, his first full story, which was written by Dennis Spooner, same person. Oh. So I'm wondering if perhaps Dennis Spooner was sort of had that idea mm-hmm. of the original Stephen character in mind when he wrote this. Ah, that could that could very well be it. Yeah, just sort of the uh, the perils of bringing back a writer who hasn't written for a while, who maybe hasn't mm-hmm. keyed into the the growth of the character over time. Right. That is a thing that we see again and again in Doctor Who. It does, even though it was only a few weeks, I suppose, since the Time Meddler was um, written. So it wasn't he wasn't as Mm-hmm. You know, and Dennis Spooner never really sort of strayed too far from Doctor Who for the next little while. So, yeah. yeah. But, but I mean, in the time meddler, he had a good sort of reason for it because yeah. Vicky was, or because he was so new and Vicky was this, you know, mm-hmm. teenage, young teenage girl. I mean, in this case, one of the things that I quite like about Stephen as a character is that he never says anything about Sarah Kingdom being a woman. Mm-hmm. And and I mean that was another thing that I quite liked about Sarah Kingdom being introduced in the uh, in the previous episode, which we didn't talk about. How they just they never say she; they make it very they're coy with the way that the dialogue is written. So Mavic Chen is saying, "Ah, Kingdom," you know, mm-hmm. I can't remember the exact the exact line, but just all about how how precise and deadly and all that kind of yep. stuff. All of these adjectives without any pro- personal pronouns, which. Uh, was cool and then i understand for the time that it's quite a a visual shocker of a reveal for her to walk in it to be oh my a woman i was expecting roger would have come a woman (laughs) (laughs) exactly but i think to steven's credit especially from him being in the future it makes me feel a little bit better about the future uh (laughs) that that he just you know she is treated by him basically the same way that brett vian was she's a soldier Mm -hmm. and you know that's that's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she's pretty cool, and she she is now sort of settling into pretty much the same role that Brett Ryan had mm-hmm. uh, in the first four episodes. So you can kind of tell that the roles have changed, just but the the their position in the story has not. Yeah, kinda, and it yeah. B- makes sense because they are both Earth security agents. Mm-hmm. They're siblings, as we yeah. know now, and and yeah, and I was I was wondering if I would have a problem with her sort of reaction at the beginning to them, you know, landing on this planet or whatever. And I feel like they didn't soften her up too much. I mean, maybe they, I I feel like had it been Brett Vian in the same situation, he wouldn't have been quite so cowed by it, but it wasn't too bad. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she was, you know, physically, physically wiped out by it. So, and she's a soldier, so she's not necessarily going to try to fight back when she's immediately been taken cap- captive because mm-hmm. she's smarter than that. She wants to get the lay of the land before, before anything else happens. And I appreciate that they didn't make us watch the doctor explain the whole thing to her. We just, you know, cut in after she's talking to Stephen about it, saying, "Oh, your crazy story, whatever." Yeah, for for a twelve-part uh, episode, which we're halfway through the story, uh, there. There doesn't seem to me to be a lot of filler, you know? They're just, everything that happens sort of happens kind of for a reason, I guess. I suppose there isn't, you know, there was no real reason for them to go off to Myra, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But they, it does lead them to find the Dalek ship and allow them to replicate the Terranium. So there always seems to be a reason for them jumping around. 
Um, and then they have to wind up back basically at the start of the story at the end of episode six, because next week is Christmas day in 1965. And they wanted to do something that wasn't necessarily part of the story. Cause they knew that people weren't necessarily going to be watching, or at least if they were going to be watching, they wouldn't be following along the story. Um, and so it's a very difficult little, little thing to sort of wrap up everything at the end of this one episode and sort of have it launch again in a couple of weeks. I feel like it was, you know, maybe you didn't need quite all of that running around to all these different planets, but it gives you these backdrops for really nifty sci-fi ideas and stuff like, you know, cellular, whatever. Dissemination, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. Something, yeah, cellular dissemination. Like that, you know, it's a cool, basically they've been transmatted, mm-hmm. uh, which is just a nifty sci-fi idea and you get the little mice and stuff. And I love that the Daleks think that the mice <laughs> might be hostile. Yeah. Sending messages back. I mean, poor little mice. But that was just hilarious uh-huh. to me. Yeah, you you go Daleks. <laughs> yeah. So there. Um, I guess that's it for these two episodes then. Because um, obviously we have to devote the next episode to Feast of Stephen, uh, whatever that is. How are you feeling, by the way? I know you were starting to nod your head a little bit in episode six, but now we've talked about it. Well, see, the reason I was nodding my head, if you didn't notice, I was only nodding my head during the Dalek scenes. Right. And that was because I was I was starting to get a little tired, and the rhythm of the Dalek ship sound, (laughs) I was just bobbing my head to that rhythm. I didn't notice that. I will point out to you that I have somewhere in my possession some uh, very kind soul at some point over the years took the Dalek sound effect, all 30 seconds of it or however much exists, and made like a 20-minute loop of it. Oh, my God. Really? Because I was just going to say I wish I had that for like a white noise sound to go to sleep by i feel like that would be like if i could just listen to a dalek ship Uh i've i've been i've been kind of having trouble falling asleep lately and i think this might be the answer like i could just that was it's so soothing that was i think the part that was making me sort of fall fall asleep like that sound and or the tardis sound like just Mm -hmm. the sound of the tardis control room just the 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 low sort of background noise of either one of those you know like 20 minutes of one 20 minutes the other like it just that would be Oh my God, that would be glorious. See what we can do. <laughs> oh my God, my life has changed today in so many ways. Uh, it's a long weekend, holiday long weekend here in Canada and the US. Um, Labor Day weekend, that is, um, which usually means that we do a lot of mm-hmm. episodes of Lazy Doctor Who. So, not to put any pressure on you or anything oh like that, but. Um, I, I don't want to promise anything. No. No. Although we started we started out our our Labor Day holiday this morning by watching Labyrinth, yeah. which is one of my favorite movies of all time, tied for my favorite movie of all time, uh, in the movie theater, which was great. And uh, I mentioned that my life had changed in many ways today. The other way that it changed, oh my God, this is amazing. Okay, so I've seen Labyrinth, I don't know, 40, 50, I, many, many, many times. You were speaking along with the dialogue in the early parts of the movie in the movie theater. I was mouthing it. I was not speaking. I didn't say it out loud. That would be rude. Well, you whispered it. Oh. I heard it. Oops. Okay. Sometimes I can't control myself. Yeah. I've seen that movie many, many times. I know. Anyway, uh, one of the characters that I, I like a lot that I actually used to have a little t-shirt was the little worm guy. If you've seen Labyrinth, you might re- remember it near the beginning of when Sarah's in the Labyrinth. She uh, she meets a worm and he says, hello. 
And she says, did you say hello? And he says, no, I said hello, but that's close enough. He's just adorable, and I like him. And there's a, apparently there's a little a plush worm Is from really? Labyrinth. Oh, mm-hmm. wow. Yes, it's been on my wish list on Amazon for a very long time. But it keeps going out of stock, and it's expensive, so oh. I, have not, I have not purchased it. But anyway, um, I like the worm. And we were watching the credits, and... Th- the name of the guy who did the voice for the worm looked really familiar, as it often does, but I I didn't I didn't know why. Mm-hmm. And then you said It's Timothy Bateson. And I was like, Yeah, why does that name sound familiar to me? Because Timothy Bateson played Binro the Heretic in your favorite classic story of all time, the Reboss Operation. And oh my my head just almost literally exploded and i mean that like just like the the blood just rushed to my head i was like oh my god two huge 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 things in my life you know media property wise falling together and clicking into place like that i was just i was yeah you were overjoyed and, he, and he's all over that movie he's like he does voices for three or four or five different other of the characters too and i think he was i don't know if he was a puppeteer but yeah i saw his name throughout the credits there but he was credited mm-hmm. for the main like he was like other voices basically is mm-hmm. what it said so so he was there wow i just i can't believe you know i had my little worm t-shirt uh tank top actually for mm-hmm. a, a long time i was i was sort of wearing a binro the heretic t-shirt for years and years yep we saw him in um Neil Gaiman's Never Wear Too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that one I recognized because I actually could see him. That was amazing. And in Labyrinth, you have uh, Danny John Jules, who plays the cat in Red Dwarf, as two of the vo- the voices of two of the Fireys. Yeah, so. that weird sequence. Yeah, that's my sort of least favorite part <laughs> of the movie. Oh, it's, it's creepy. And it, it was choreographed by uh, Cheryl McFadden, <laughs> Cheryl Gates <laughs> McFadden, uh, Dr. Crusher from from Star Trek The Next Generation. So, yeah, Labyrinth is a very, like, geeky movie with lots of geekery from lots of different places mm-hmm. sort of put together. Rock and roll, Muppets. Mm-hmm. And featuring Timothy Bateson, the the thread that weaves through mm-hmm. your entire life. It's amazing. It's pretty great. Ben was right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is that it for this, then? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.